My guest on this episode is the co-author of a very important report. With Scotland and Ireland set to take a new path politically, more people are asking questions about Wales becoming an independent country. At the same time, there are big financial risks from staying where we are. Many have fair and good questions about the economics. Can we afford independence? Would we be able to afford the same level of welfare and public services as people get now? How would the Welsh economy sustain itself? What would Welsh finances look like under independence? Would taxes go up? Would we have to see another round of austerity when we know how much damage the last lot of cuts have done? To answer some of these questions is my guest, Dr. Ed Poole. Ed is one of the authors of a report by Cardiff University's Wales Governance Centre called Wales's Fiscal Future, A Path to Sustainability, with Gitto Ivan and Kian Sean, which was published in March 2020, just as Covid hit us. The report attempts to provide a sober assessment of Wales's current fiscal position and explores some of the implications of Welsh independence. Diolch ar croeso, Ed. It's good to talk to you. You say in the opening lines of the report that it isn't a comprehensive assessment. You hope that your report will stimulate an informed and wide-ranging debate. What debate were you and your co-authors trying to stimulate? Thanks ever so much, and for the opportunity to be here. And it's nice that we were able to talk about a subject that isn't coronavirus once again and the impact of the pandemic on the finances of Wales and on the public health of Wales. The reason that we wanted to put this report out is because right up until the lockdown back in 2020, of course, we had this growing movement that was in line with some of the other developments we've been seeing elsewhere in these islands with a growing conversation about whether or not Wales would be in a better position as an independent country. But the problem is there's no real hard evidence out there on what that would look like and what an independent Wales might look like, what the fiscal choices we'd have to make as an independent country would be, and what the consequences of remaining in the union for a very long time would be. In, in some ways, it's the status quo, but as we know in Wales, sometimes the status quo isn't a great situation. So we wanted to put some data out there. Of course, it can never be the last word. There's nothing in academia is ever the last word on a subject. We spent some time working on looking at the consequences of either constitutional future for Wales in the Union or as an independent country, and we found that both of these would be faced with challenges. Problem was, is that we published this, as you mentioned, uh, just a couple of weeks before the UK went into lockdown in March 2020, so it never really got the traction that it might have done had we not been uh, dealing with that kind of generational crisis at that time. How has the picture changed then since you published the report? Big changes, but also stability, right? We've lived through this unbelievably generation-defining event with the pandemic that has obviously had the public health impact on deaths and long COVID and all of the, the human consequences of that. But it's also had fiscal consequences. We had more than £5 billion added to the Welsh budget over a series of months as a way to respond you know, with the health service and business support. Amounts of money that would have been unthinkable at any other time in devolution. 
corruption. There's enormous amount of money going through the Welsh government system. And actually, for all of the disagreement between the Welsh government and the UK government, the Welsh government has done a fantastic job in stepping up to the challenge. And 20 years ago, this was a you know a civil servants team that was brunt of jokes at Whitehall as the minnow of a Whitehall department. And, and our Welsh government, through its NHS and the way that the councils have stepped up to push out business support grants and individual support grants, for example, it's just been a, a real credit to the devolved institutions that I don't think they get enough credit for. So on the one hand, we've had this massive generational defining event. And obviously, with that amount of money that's going through the system, the UK deficit is much greater than it was when we wrote this work. As a result, when we look at, at allocating those deficits around the UK, as we would as a territorial share, if you like, of the UK deficit, the Welsh deficit will have gone up because it's just a share of a much greater UK deficit. That's the short term change. In the long term, we can argue that not a lot has changed. With 20 years, 22 years of devolution, when you look at the results of where Wales's fiscal gap or economic performance is relative to the rest of the UK, that gap hasn't changed And that tells us something that's structural. This is not party political. This is not a temporary event. This is a structural problem in Wales's economic relationship with the rest of the UK. In many ways, even though we've got this big change, the longer term picture is not changed. Scotland gets a better deal from the Barnet formula than Wales does, with benefits accruing year on year as time goes on. Does this at least partly explain why the picture for Scotland financially is much rosier than the picture for Wales? Yes, I think so. So we've got two things going on. In Wales, under the current constitutional arrangements, as Wales is part of the union, Wales has a fiscal gap in terms of what it spends versus what it raises in revenues. And that is primarily a result of lower revenues per head from taxes in Wales compared with the rest of the UK. And that is primarily because, as we know, Wales has lower levels of income generally than is true of the UK as a whole. Therefore, there's lower revenues going into the tax pot. In Scotland, there's a different situation. So Scotland also has a deficit, although not as great as Wales is per head. But their revenues per person are pretty similar to the UK as a whole. What is different is expenditures per person are higher in Scotland than is true of England and Wales. The reason for that is that the Barnet formula is only one part of the elements of how each part of the UK calculates its budget. Because whatever the the government spent in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland the previous year is banked. The Barnet formula only takes into account the change in spending from the current year to the next year. It doesn't change the base at all. And that's important because Scotland's population has been growing more slowly than the population of England and Wales over decades now. So if you don't change the base that the government spends, which is the vast majority of the government's budget each year, then that base is going to be spread amongst relatively fewer people compared with England and Wales. So over time, Scotland's per capita advantage in spending has crept up, particularly when it compares with England and also with Wales. We've had population growth that has been higher than that of Scotland. So we've got two deficits, but two different reasons for the deficits in Wales and Scotland. Can you explain how we are losing out from HS2 and the funds that are available for so-called levelling up? 
So HS2 is a real bugbear. It's going to become really problematic in the years to come because we know that in Britain, when we have a multi-decade project, it's going to spend more than the budget that it's been allocated. And as most of your listeners will know, HS2, for whatever reason, has been designated as an England and Wales project, even though there's not a centimetre of track anywhere near Wales. And HS2 trains are going to run to Edinburgh and Glasgow, but not to anywhere in Wales, yet Scotland is receiving a full consequential as a result of not being designated as an England, Wales and Scotland project. So we've got several things going on. HS2, as it becomes a bigger part of the budget, a department for transport budget, it's going to have a big impact on how much revenue is transferred to Wales in the coming years. I just want to be clear, there's two separate things going on in terms of rail funding. First one is that Wales's share of rail spending is smaller than its population share. So the amount of funds that are spent on Wales' railways are smaller than it should be given Wales' population share. So we've got that to deal with on the one hand and we've been underfunded in terms of network investment spending and we know that because we've only got a couple of miles of electrified track just going through the seven tunnel and ending in Cardiff as if that's a sign of a a national interconnected network and the only way that the valleys are being electrified is because the Welsh government has clawed the, the central valleys lines out of the grips of network rail in order to electrify it itself. So we have underinvestment on rail infrastructure. The other problem is HS2 which is going to have a big impact on how much is going to be transferred in future. This is because the Barnet formula, it's really straightforward, but there's one kink in the problem that makes it a challenge for us. Basically, as we know, the Barnet formula doesn't affect UK level spending at all. So if you have a pension or you apply for universal credit, there's not a pot of money from the DWP that goes to to Wales or Scotland. It's done if you apply for universal credit or if you're a pensioner. As an individual, you'll get that wherever you are in the UK. But for devolved services, the Barnet formula kicks in and that gives Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland a population share of any increase in spending on a non-devolved service in England. So if HS2 was classed as devolved spending, we'd get a full consequence of that spending increase, about 5%. So if we imagine HS2 costing £100 billion, on the face of it, it looks like we would get a 5% of that, so £5 billion as a consequence of an England-only project. It's a bit more complicated than that because it's because the way the Barnet formula work is not by individual programmes like HS2. It's of a, a share of the Department for Transport Spending as a whole. And that's done by an average of how much transport spending is classed as being devolved and how much is classed as being reserved to Westminster. Now, the fact that HS2 is classed as being reserved to Westminster is going to be a problem because the average spend of the Department of Transport is going to increase towards the reserved end of the spectrum. Whereas in Scotland and Northern Ireland, it's going to stay almost completely devolved. So as lots and lots of billions upon billions of pounds are pushed through the system, the percentage that Wales is going to get from that increase in spending in the Department of Budget is going to be squeezed. It's going to be squeezed not just for HS2, it's going to be squeezed on devolved spending as well, because that transport department consequential is going to be the one that controls it. If you imagine road spending, for example, that too is going to be subject to a lower percentage that's going to be transferred from Westminster because 
because all transport spending is going to be included in that one percentage that is applied to any increases in spending in the UK transport budget. It's a bit complicated, but it's an indication of just how big a problem it's going to be over the years if HS2 consumes a greater and greater amount of the Department of Transport budget. Wales's share of what we can receive from any transport spending increases is going to be squeezed down. So Scotland is not going to face the same problems as Wales from this squeeze. Do you think that's because Scotland has greater political clout within the union because they are marching towards independence? I think there's a there's the technical answer that the, the Treasury and the UK government give you, and there's the political reality of Realpolitik UK. The technical answer is that because rail infrastructure is not devolved and was refused probably the biggest mistake in retrospect of that 2006 decision to not accept rail infrastructure funding because the Welsh government wasn't ready for it. But as a result of rail infrastructure not being devolved by the Railways Act 2006, we have a situation where the UK government says it is responsible for rail infrastructure spending in both England and Wales, even though the levels of investment in Welsh railways are below a population share. So that's the technical reason. They will say, well, rail infrastructure isn't evolved, therefore HS2 isn't evolved, even though Crossrail was considered an England-only project and that belatedly considered an England-only project, and that, of course, is rail infrastructure spending. The political reality, of course, is that if they try to claim that HS2 was an England, Wales and Scotland project, taking out eight or nine billion pounds from the Scottish budget over the life of HS2, that is politically untenable for the UK government to try to do. So we're again in this situation where the Treasury is the judge and jury over the Barnet formula, and we haven't had the clout yet to say, hold on, there's something really wrong here where we've got uh, underinvestment in the railways on the one hand, and now future underinvestment as a result of HS2, not only having trains through to the north of England and to Glasgow and Edinburgh, but having the expected impact of economic activity movement away from areas that are not covered by HS2 to areas that benefit from high-speed train between London and the major metropolitan areas of North West England and Scotland. Talk about the double whammy. There's more than a double whammy here. There's multiple whammies in terms of the impact, both budgetarily and in terms of economic activity as a result of this. And I, I don't see things changing because it's very difficult with the Treasury. There's no external arbiter here. There's no ability for using intergovernmental mechanisms to say, hold on a minute, there's something not right here. And there needs to be some sort of independent arbitration mechanism. We just don't have that in the way that the UK works in that sense. It's a big democratic question, actually, isn't it? The shortfall now would be one thing. The way you're talking, that shortfall is only going to get bigger. So if we assume the political choices that are in place now don't change, what do you think that shortfall will be looking like at the beginning of an independent Wales? And what are the political choices that would need to be made for economic stability and to ensure that we don't have even more people forced into poverty? I mean, you mentioned the report that um, I've been a co-author on, and this is where I'd really encourage folks to have a look at this, because we really have thought through some of the difficult choices that we'd have to make. Because even on the most optimistic assumptions, and people often talk about, well, we wouldn't need to spend so much on defence, we wouldn't need to spend you know, so much on perhaps energy, if, we, if we're exporting energy, there's marginal changes that I agree would have some impact on the size of the deficit. 
But even under the most optimistic readings of this, on day one, the deficit will still remain quite large. And therefore, you'd have to be dealing with, in the short term, an unsustainable fiscal situation. Now, lots of countries that have become independent have done this. But in the first few years have been a shock to the financial system, for the fiscal system. There'd be a lot of choices that have to be made, whether that's borrowing or wide-ranging changes to tax and spending policies. Because the basic fundamentals we have at the moment is we spend about the level that we do in Ireland per person, but we raise revenues about the level of that in Portugal. We're between two Europes, if you like, in terms of what we're raising per head and what we're spending per capita. And we've got to make sure that we don't lose those vital safety nets like the NHS and pensions and unemployment support and disability support. These are things that are going to be essential. And I think it's very, very few people, if any, in either side of the independence debate that wants to, to downplay the importance of maintaining social spending on those really important areas for everyone. So the challenge here is what do you do to make sure that we can keep that safety net spending? And so that's where we've, we've looked at various options over time. But the related question, and this is something that Calvin Jones, you know, a colleague at Cardiff Business School, often talks about, is what is the goal of an economy in a world that is limited in terms of scarcity. We know that this rush for economic growth at all costs is creating this unbelievable problem in terms of the climate and that we can't just keep rushing for unsustainable growth all the time. And to me, I think that that argument could be very much linked into this, is what type of growth and future economy in Wales do we want? You know, If it's just limited to making sure that we have maximum economic growth at all times, then we're going to see a different picture than, well, what type of things do we want to be buying? What types of things do we want to be making? And those questions, I think, when we're struggling with a fiscal gap, we'd also struggle with a trade gap, because at the moment we import more than we export, because that's subsidised, if you will, from a fiscal transfer, because we spend more than we raise. So these questions are all, to me, integrated. What type of country do we want to be, not just on the constitutional side, but in terms of we know that chasing economic growth at all costs is suicidal for the planet. One of the conclusions that you draw is that Wales's economic position presents challenges to supporters of independence, but you also say it's challenging for those who want Wales to remain in the UK with low pay, poverty and health inequalities stubbornly entrenched and worsening. Can you explain that dilemma? Yes. Yeah, so uh, as we know, this Wales's economic performance and therefore its fiscal performance in terms of the public finances, this is a long-term issue. This is a result of economic transition, both from international, you know, globalisation, but also from choices made about the industries that formerly were very important in parts of Wales, made elsewhere. And as a result of that, we've got long-term consequences. Anybody who drives in the area that, that you're from, Leanne, or the whole part of this region knows that we've got long-term poverty, we've got poor levels of housing stock, we've got high levels of disability, we've got lower levels of entry into the employment market. And all of these things are going to have a consequence on whether Wales, in the bluntest sense, can close the gap by increasing its tax take per person. How would you get from a position where you've got structural levels of poverty, unemployment, lower levels of participation, low pay, low skilled jobs relative to the big metropolitan areas? So we're asking when we talk about well, how can Wales 
punch above its weight in economic terms? Well, it, it can't really with, with this level of chronic underinvestment. What you need to have if Wales is going to be successful in the union, you'd have to have an, a national plan of kind of unprecedented magnitude, where you'd have to have massive investment in infrastructure, in skills, in education, to try and reset the chronic state in which we find ourselves in as a result of economic change that very rapidly took place in so many parts of Wales. And we don't see that level of a national plan. And in fact, when we look at this, and often Ireland is Ireland's kind of Celtic tiger miracle, people just attribute that to being a tax cutter or to having, you know, Google and Amazon come in with a nice financial deal to get them to come in. That's not how Ireland's economic turnaround happens. It happened over decades and decades of investment in infrastructure, in skills, in education. It was a massive old way of talking about the supply side in economics, where you're looking at what would be required to turn an economy around. And we just don't see that from a government of any stripe at Westminster, having that level of, of target multi-decade investment that would need to turn around low levels of pay, high levels of poverty, and that's what would be needed. So we wanted to set up this report about, well, what does it mean to be in the union? Well, there's also consequences of that as well. The status quo for many people, particularly with the cost of living crisis right now, is not great at all. And we don't see the level of focus and attention that would be needed if Wales is somehow going to close the gap with the rest of the UK. So our current situation is unsustainable and alternative options are difficult. That's basically what you're saying, isn't it? So how and where can we have this debate that we clearly really need to have now? I think the, the pressure from people raising questions about this is really, really important because we know from the way that the UK works, as Realpolitik Union, as my colleague Richard Wynne-Jones calls it, you know, those who speak loudly about grievances tend to get the, the, the fiscal reward, if you like. We know the history of Scotland and Northern Ireland. We've also got at the moment the Conservatives and that infuriating phrase about the Red Wall and the Conservatives' focus on the north of England, as if the rest of the UK now doesn't matter, because it's now politically very important for the governing party at Westminster to retain its representation in that area. So this is the way that the UK works and has done for very many decades. And so the, the keeping up that knowledge, that passion, that, that sense that something can be better is really, really important. We can't get down the route of just believing that this is our lot that this is what we don't need to change the aspirations and the economic and social state of affairs of people in this country. And that actually things like protest marches, and now that we're back post-pandemic, but post-pandemic restrictions, these are the type of things that we should be doing again. We should be going on marches, we should be talking to politicians, we should be asking our representatives to explain just what exactly is going to be the plan to improve the lot of people in Wales and the country as a whole. I think those types of questions are going to force this conversation up the agenda and whether or not that results in constitutional change it, it certainly makes it more likely that these the chronic problems are going to be at least considered and hopefully dealt with Ed, you've given us a fantastic overview of the financial situation, a really complex question. And you've also given us some good pointers as to what we can do to change the situation. Be off about Ed. 
I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast. <laughs>